0: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Here we go. Here we go. The, the Here one we qu- go. Here we go. This is what I've called the one Q&A to rule them all. Um, an obvious nod to Lord of the Rings for all of my Tolkien fans out there. Uh, just really glad uh, to be doing this Q&A. I love Q&A episodes. Uh, you guys asked a ton of questions. And we won't get to answer them all. I'm very sorry. Uh, they're, they're not because they weren't good. A lot of good ones. Some spicy ones. A lot of good ones. Uh, thank you for keeping it PG in the comments. Grateful for that. Um, and uh, no, we're really excited to get to do it. But before we do that, I have a question. Which is, have you ever had a culinary experience that was everything you wanted it to be? Because this morning, there's been something that for years I have wanted and this morning, I had it, and I'm so grateful for it. Do you know what it is?
1: An egg McGriddle.
0: Nope. What do you think it is, June?
2: So, just to be clear, you—I was just going say, to say—to be clear, you don't actually want to know if we've had a culinary. No, experience. it was you a setup. Tell it was
0: not yours. Yeah, it was a setup for mine. Mm-hmm. Uh
2: huh. Um, let's see. It's your. It's a breakfast item that you've always mm-hmm. wanted to have, and yep. you finally got to have it. Yep. Uh, it is a stuffed pancake.
0: Whoa. Now I have a new item. (laughs) 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 What is it? It's a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken biscuit. Uh, The Lord heard the cries uh, of his people. Why they did not have, if they introduced the spicy chicken sandwich years (laughs) ago, and I don't know what the science is of transitioning from the spicy chicken sandwich to the biscuit, but somewhere in a Chick Fil A lab, some scientist has been hard at work trying to get it right, and they they nailed it. It's better. If it, 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 the, <laughs> the spicy chi- it chicken, sandwich, The spicy no. chicken sandwich was was yeah. an upgrade from the regular, and the spicy Agreed. chicken biscuit is better. No. It is better than. Anything they've done, I just want to say, tip of the hat, if you work for Chick fil A, I know there's a lot of Christians in that organization, and you work in a space where you can relay to the, the higher ups that this should be a permanent and not a seasonal food item, it should be permanent forever.
1: And, it's not, an, and it's not an exaggeration to say that knowing faith started in a Chick fil A. That
2: That's is so 100%. True.
0: Yeah. It's our bat cave.
2: They're yeah. also not paying us to say this, which no. makes it more embarrassing. Yeah, but oh, if
1: you guys sure. wanted to send some like wow. free, <laughs> some have
2: like we free... talked on the show about JT's weird rituals that he has at Chick fil A? Oh, yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, we covered fine. that. Okay, that. that is yeah. why I'm sure I we did could did bring it up as ago. many times. No, yeah,
0: it's like Russell Crohn, A Beautiful Mind. It's like <laughs> watching him lay out his Chick fil A <laughs> sauce. Yeah, it's, it's, there's something there. There's something once, deeply once you
1: find Once you find the perfect like alchemist's Chick fil A mm-hmm. sauce combination and ratio you can't go back and mm-hmm. i that's what i've done i can't share <laughs> it here, <though. laughs>
0: i just want to say if you work for chick-fil-a uh, uh we are giving you we are plugging you and you guys need the plug because mm-hmm. your lines are never full <laughs> uh so you need this plug but no seriously chick-fil-a way to go
2: no you know what they need to bring back you know what my favorite thing was and they don't make it anymore it broke levitical laws but it was so good what is the mama baby combo? It was the it was the breakfast burrito that was the chicken and the egg. So you don't have to ask which came first because yes. they're just all in there. They still have that burrito. Together. No, they put potatoes in it now.
1: Not at my Chick Fil A. What? Ooh. Yeah, no, I still get that all the time. Is this time?
2: another move to Colorado ploy here? <laughs> no,
1: I'm just
0: saying we're better than you. <gasps> move to Colorado. We have. We we break Levitical law for
2: breakfast. I want the I want the mama baby combo back.
1: Hold on. So they don't they don't put eggs in it or they don't put chicken in it?
2: I think it's eggs and potatoes and chicken.
1: That sounds not fun.
2: Mama and baby don't want no taters out all up in the club. They just want yeah. the mama and the baby and that really they good want. salsa.
1: That's what we have. Oh, That's man. Also incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: This it's is incredible. This good. could be the most divisive thing we have today. Um, but we do have some questions. Thank you mm-hmm. guys for submitting questions. That Jen
2: and
1: I haven't seen yet.
0: Just no, you haven't. Way. We have no, not no, no. seen
2: them. Yes. You have not seen real the questions.
0: Safe. And it's going to be all right. Um, you're in good hands. Um, I do want to just say before we get to the questions, hey, thank you for listening to Knowing Faith. Mm-hmm. I know there is a ton of content out there. There's a ton of podcasts out there. We're glad you listened to Knowing Faith. We love our audience. I think we have one of the best audience in podcasting. You guys are always so kind and cordial in the comments. Thank you for that. Um, And let's keep it that way. Let's keep being a charitable, curious audience. It seems like the internet is convinced uh, at an algorithm level to not keep us that way. But we're going to keep doing that. And you keep being that way. um, And we'll continue to grow this podcast. We really love our audience. Thank you for asking your questions. First question from Melody. How do we reconcile Judgment Day with the knowledge that when we repent, God forgets, quotes, or cast away our sins? Mm -hmm. So, okay, if there's going to be a Judgment Day where we are weighed, then how do we reconcile that with the idea that God forgets or cast away our sins? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, let's start with forgets. Really, you could start with either of those. those are those are anthropomorphic expressions. Um they are ways of talking about God in human terms so that we can understand a deeper concept. So um, does God forget our sins? Um, yeah, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, he does in the, way, in the sense that they are no longer held against us. He casts them away. They are as far away from him as the East is from the West um, in a metaphorical sense. But in a literal sense, does he forget our sins? No, God cannot forget anything, nor would you want him to, because there are some really important things that you need him to remember. Things like that Christ's sacrificial death, his burial and resurrection are for all eternity. You don't want him to forget that. And so what we need to recognize is that even though God does still remember our sins, he keeps no record of them in the sense that he does not hold them against us. And that's actually better than him actually forgetting our sins if we if we give it some thought.
0: That's good. I don't think I'd say anything differently from that. Same. Morgan asked, will we see King Saul in heaven? Hmm. Hmm. I never, I never really thought about this question until I read it. Good question, Morgan. Um, I don't know who all— uh, Let me answer it like this. I'm going to be— I'm going to punt on it, but maybe it'll be a helpful punt. Like, I don't know who all we're going to see and have, <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: well, I know that Somebody said this. This is not unique to me, but there's that idea of like, we're going to be surprised by who we do see and surprised by who we don't. Right. I think that's a helpful thing here is it? Mm-hmm. it's really not up to us to yeah. decide. It, it is up to the Lord Jesus and his judgment. And— Grace and mercy and injustice, and mm-hmm. yeah. there's just no way for us to know by external standards whether it's biblical characters or those around us who is who is doing things because they have pure motives that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, or those who are doing things out of a desire to perform,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. or
1: you know, I, I just think we can't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you, but if you were asking this because of the spirit of God or the anointing of God, departing Saul Mm -hmm. for David, I would not draw like a one-to-one correspondence Mm -hmm. with that language and salvation. I would, I think that language is uniquely situated in the historical books to talk about the anointed king. Um, And in the same way that like when Oholiab and Bezalel have the spirit of God fall upon them in Exodus 31, it's for a purpose, which is the construction and beautification of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And so I would say there are sometimes some unique anointings that are given um, in the Old Testament that are weighted towards a purpose and less weighted towards the question of salvation. So that'd be my only like
2: flag. Yeah. And not only that, also, nice job pronouncing Aholiab and Bezalel. You're on Bang. your game today, Kyle. It's at yeah. breakfast. It's the most yep, important meal chicken. of the day. But I do think when you look at the story of Saul and David, um, I think it's better to not make it a story about this primarily conserved Concerned with an individual's salvation, it's a story that's primarily concerned with the nature of kingship in Israel. And Saul, you know, as we talked about at length when we covered First and Second Samuel, Saul is the man of the people's choosing. David is the man of God's choosing. Um, that means, as the ruler in Israel, not you know, with a salvific sense. I don't think you want to take it to that level. So I do think it's fair to say we don't actually know where, where Saul is. The way that his story plays out is telling us what happens when um, the people of God set their own terms for how they will be governed. So in many ways, what happens to Saul is a result of the folly of Israel as much as it's a result of any folly on Saul's part. So I think we don't want to overplay the story.
0: There we go. Uh, Michelle asks, JT, are false stories the same thing as worldviews?
1: Yeah, I think basically, I mean, when we were sitting down to write the training program curriculum, we were trying to find helpful ways to help people think about just the basic cultural narratives that they live in. Now, there's probably some difference between false narratives or false stories and worldviews. I I, Honestly, I don't love the idea of worldview. It feels like a, I don't even know why I don't like it. It just doesn't feel like a very helpful term for the things that we actually do. It feels like it almost requires more definition than false story does, and so when we tell people in the training program or now in the Institute, we, we say, you are living in all kinds of different stories, participating even unknowingly in a story that you believe is true of the world. I guess in a lot of ways, that's the same as worldview. But I, I, I have felt that uh, people who kind of just lay people in the church resonate more with the language of false stories or false narratives than they do with worldviews. Yeah, Worldview feels like a kind of an <laughs> academic apologetic yeah. terminology and false stories like, oh, that's me. I live in a story.
0: I agree. It's uh, Worldview is almost worldview feels like, well, it's this set of glasses and I can like put down this one and grab another one. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, I'll just replace these glasses and then I can see things clear. But it's not nearly as participatory Mm -hmm. as our actual lived experiences. So if you want more on that, yeah, there's a a lot of good resources on that topic. Um, But yes, I would agree with what you said, JT. Uh, I think stories seems to be stickier as a concept Mm -hmm. than worldviews is Mm -hmm. although there's a lot of overlap when we talk about like uh, gosh dystopianism or we talk about moral therapeutic deism any of those isms can function as a worldview but what jt is saying is maybe worldview is not as sticky as a concept and also maybe worldview feels too conceptual we're not saying that like there's a huge difference between how we're, we're we're thinking about them
2: would you say that it's possible for a worldview to be a false story, but it's possible for a false story to not be a worldview? Or is that not accurate? Mm,
1: I think I would probably say that. I need to think a little bit more deeply about, like, which false story maybe isn't a worldview. Because mm-hmm. some of them aren't, like, ideologically driven. They're idolatry driven.
2: Right. Or, and they're not necessarily comprehensive you could have a like a worldview it's like this is my whole way of seeing things whereas a false story could actually have worked its way in underneath without even, even into you a, yeah mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah, so I think I think the main thing I would say too, even in the in the story language, it, we use a quote often in the Institute of Babette Buster saying, uh, "Narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins." And she mm-hmm. is ultimately saying that from kind of a postmodernistic perspective of a post-truth world that just tell stories and tell the better story and you win. And we don't want to say that when we when we use quotes like that and we use narratival or storied language. We aren't saying that there are a bunch of kind of cap or lowercase uh, s stories. We are saying there are a bunch of lowercase s stories, but that there is one true story, right. mm-hmm. yeah. and we need to make make that clear: is that there aren't just a bunch of smaller stories that are competing that you can live in and choose to live in and come in and out of. We're saying there's actually one true story found in Genesis to Revelation that all people are called to find themselves as participants in.
0: Mm-hmm. Nathaniel asks, "How can brothers and sisters in brothers in Christ best support sisters who are pursuing some form of ministry in the U.S. context?" Yeah, great question, Nathaniel. (laughs) I would say um, a lot of the ways you could support your sisters would be the probably the same ways you support your brothers: Uh, Mm -hmm. pray for them, love them, Mm -hmm. care about them, uh, take an active interest in what they're learning, treat Mm -hmm. them as persons. Um, respect them, show dignity and honor?
2: Assuming that Nathaniel is in a ministry context, you know, you can open doors for them too, and you can advocate for them. I always say, you know, um, like I just got a new boss and he says, how can I help you? And I said, I need the same things I've always needed. I need access and advocacy. I I need you to, uh, if if I say something, you go, yeah, that's, you know, I would, I would agree with that. Like they sound like small things, but they give um, women a footing in spaces where there may not have historically been a lot of women. And it's the same thing that you would do for a brother who you were wanting to bring into that space and, and establish as a credible um, voice. And so um, there really isn't a lot of difference between the way that you would advocate for a sister and the way that you would advocate for a brother. Other than that, often um, it is more intuitive to do so for a brother. And less intuitive to do so for a sister. Yeah,
1: yeah. JT, what do you think? I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I think this is maybe a bit more um, circumstantial, but there's going to be. This is not going to apply to all women in ministry who are looking for access and advocacy, but some of them are going to need some flexibility as it relates to either yeah. employment or opportunities mm-hmm. to step in. So I've got a couple women on my staff who uh, are kind of the primary caretakers of their kiddos, and they do school drop-off and school pickup, and they're indispensable to me in my ministry. And so we make sure that we're also moving like ministry meetings around, lead team meetings around to make sure that they can be full participants in -hmm. the life of of the decision-making kind of mechanisms of Mm storyline.
2: I would count that as access. That's an access piece. That's fair. That's fair. It's removing um, uh, barriers to participation is what access is. Yeah, that's good.
0: Your copy today. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Lindsay, my roommate Ellie and I have been discussing, is the soul inherently gendered as male or female? If yes or no, what are the implications for complementarianism?
2: Is the soul inherently...
1: This one's for you, Kyle. You're just lobbing these out. Your turn.
2: I think I know where this conversation is coming from. There's a you new do? there's a new book out. Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker put a book out um, called Jesus and Gender, and they explore that issue at length. So um, I'm on chapter one, so I don't think I can actually answer that question right now.
0: Is the soul inherently gendered?
2: Like in the same way that we would say God is not inherently gendered, uh, would we say huh. that about the human soul? I know that I, Elise would say no, but I don't know what her arguments are.
0: Yeah, my I will tell you when I like immediately read the question when I was putting in the document, my answer was no. That was my answer. It was that no, we're not inherently gendered and that gender is primarily manifested in our biological and physiological embodiment. That was my mm-hmm. immediate answer. Mm-hmm. I, I but I, I don't know that I know enough to say yes or no definitively though. Is the soul yeah, inherent?
1: No. I mean, here's where it gets tough. So even if we back up, so the doctrine of anthropology, which mm-hmm. is the doctrine of humanity, uh, one of the primary issues in the doctrine of anthropology is how many parts make up a human being. Right. Uh-huh. The the overwhelming, not overwhelming, I would say the majority view of church history is called di- the dichotomist perspective, right. which means that we're made up of bodies and souls. There are some who have held to a trichotomist perspective that say we're body, souls, and spirits. Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then the question is: Is what's the difference between a soul and a spirit? I'm a dichotomist. I believe soul and spirit is meant to be used kind of interchangeably and mm-hmm. synonymously. Mm-hmm. And so, let's just say hypothetically in this conversation, we're at least dichotomist. If there's trichotomous, I don't, actually don't think it removes. I don't think it changes the question we're trying to ask here. But I think the maybe the more important question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is I don't know that it. it I don't know that the answer matters because we aren't thought. We, like, we are not meant to break ourselves up. Uh huh into body and soul. Mm-hmm. We're meant to see ourselves as image bearers and people, which we would say are some kind of a complex dichotomy and complex union of body and soul. And it would be overly Gnostic uh, to try to tear those things apart that God has brought together. And so we I, I don't know that we need to answer the question, well, the body is gendered and the soul is not. People are gendered. Yes, yeah. yes,
2: yes, yes. Well, and I think I would be more interested in the question behind the question in this case. I'd kind of want to know why why they want to you know why they're asking it because you know one of the things we've taken a lot of care with in our conversations around this is to say. Um, that it matters that we're gendered, but it's not the most important thing about us. And so that is an answer that we can feel confident giving is that, you know, we've talked a lot about how Genesis two is showing sameness first and then difference second. So, um, and the fact that I share more in common with either of you than I do with a female cat. Right. Right. So my, my femaleness matters. Debatable.
1: (laughs) My, Based upon your snarkiness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, that's fair. But, but my 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 femaleness is not my defining feature. It's my humanness. Yep. Uh, but that's my femaleness right. matters a great deal. So mm-hmm. um, we can say that with confidence, but I think we would want to look further into this before, you know, saying yeah or no.
1: Yeah, I think what I was trying to get at with that is just I, I want to make sure that we aren't like – Yes, we are bodies, and yes, we are souls. Both of those matter, but before that, we are all people. We people. are image bearers, mm-hmm. and to separate, we we should separate those things as far as the Bible does. But we don't want to overly separate them into right. a materialistic perspective or kind of a Gnostic spiritualistic mm-hmm. perspective that that sees these two things as different.
2: Mm-hmm. But you might check out that book by Elise Fitzpatrick. I've heard great and things about. Eric it. I've Schumacher. not read it. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't, it okay. wasn't sent to me. It was only sent to mm. evangelical celebrities.
2: Well, and I'm saying check it out without <laughs> having read it. So if you hate it, I didn't, I didn't send it to you hoping that you would, you know, I mean, just do with it what you will.
0: There we go. Uh, Sue's asks, do you consider women's Bible study and women's ministry to be the same thing?
2: Oh gosh. I guess this is directed <laughs> at me, right? <laughs>
1: no, no. That's Why what would you is say the that? Thing. Are you inherently gendered? <laughs>
2: Uh, I would say, you know, I mean, obviously you would say, well, women's Bible study is a subset of women's ministry, but I would argue that if at all possible, it's good for it to be the central piece of, of. Of women's ministry, that all other aspects of a women's ministry would be coming uh, from that, that that would be your home base. And so, like, what will often happen is people will make community the home base of women's ministry. uh, And then it's very hard to get women to go from those communal spaces into study spaces. It is much less hard to get women to go from study spaces into spaces that are overtly communal uh, or community building. And so, when you're, if you have the luxury of starting with nothing and building something, my my um, encouragement is always to begin with the thing that you want to be central, and to let that be the thing that they are the least likely to opt into, you know, given other options. And so, um, a thought level Bible study is something that they need, but they may not want. Um, A a, a Women's Night of Encouragement is something that they want, but they may not need, or they may not need as much as they need the other things. So as you're thinking about how you're going to structure the ministry, um, I've just had the great joy of having been able to have a place where Bible study is the central focus, and then the other things are nice uh, to have, but they're not the mission-critical aspect of what we're doing.
0: That's great. Perfect. Uh, Matthew, can can you help me understand the difference between the ontological and economic trinity? Uh, why does it matter? Yeah, ontological trinity is sometimes called the imminent trinity. It's the trinity's ad intra, life in and of itself. It's focused on talking about the – if we can use this phrase, and JT will quickly tell me if we can't. The interior life of the Godhead, the behind-the-scenes of the story of redemption, life of the Godhead. We're not talking about two different trinities – that's for sure. We're talking about two different angles on the life of the one triune God. Is that accurate, JT?
1: Yeah, so sometimes the way that theologians talk about this is ad intra and ad extra, or God in himself, or God in redemptive history. And the question is, is how can you know God in himself? Well, the only way that you can know God in in himself is how he expresses, reveals, and works in redemptive history. That's ad extra. And so that, or, or another term would be economic trinity, how he works in the economy. We're not talking about the financial structure of the Godhead. We're talking about the economy of redemptive history. And how he works. And so, just real simply, we would say in redemptive history, in the economy, add extra, we see God the Father eternally being or being unsent. He is unbegotten, uh, to use creedal language, or the Son is sent by the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Uh, add extra in the economy of redemption. So then we begin to think how does that how does that then mean that the eternal godhead before he creates before he makes before he saves and redeems how does god relate to himself? So we would say that ad intro god the father is eternally unsent that god the son eternally has life granted to himself by the father and that god the holy spirit is eternally proceeding or the love between god the father and god the son. It's really simple when you think about it.
2: Yeah, I'm just really. kidding. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I'm, um, um. I was about to say, wait, what? Um,
1: Lane <laughs> ask what
0: are your thoughts on Paul saying to not pay attention to genealogies in 1 Timothy? Yeah, I think he means like, don't even read them. <laughs> don't bother with them. Don't worry about them. Now, when Paul says to not pay attention to genealogies, right, he's saying like, hey, uh, be careful that you don't put too much stock in like your genealogical history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That you don't divide yourself from others or believe that you are should occupy primacy of place because of where you have come from in your genealogy, mm-hmm. right? Good. I mean, he's not, he's not saying genealogies in the Bible don't matter. He's not saying don't read them. He's not saying they're of no significance. He's not even saying that for your own personal life, they're insignificant. He's really saying they're not the most significant thing about you. And if you use them that way, you're abusing them.
2: It's good. Is that right? Yeah. Don't dog on the genealogies or I will come at you.
0: Yeah, Lane. Um, <laughs> Lydia. Lydia asked a question. Oh, hey, beautiful name, Lydia. Mm-hmm. Um, name of my daughter. Not that you are my daughter, uh, but is the name of my daughter. Why is the Father referred to as God the Father, but Christ is referred to as the Son of God, not God the Son? Does this language confuse the equality of the Trinity in any way? I refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of God or as God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. I wonder if she's saying there's probably not as many references in Scripture to Christ being called God the Son, but the Son of God. Yeah, you know, it's the, the order isn't reversed intentionally. There's there's nothing that we should be taking from that that is now like ontologically or metaphysically given to the son. We just want to say that the primary relationship that God the Father and God the Son have is one of filial connection or familial connection between God the Father being Father and God the Son being the Son, whether we call him the Son of God or God the Son. Great. Yeah.
0: Um, April asks, who is your favorite of the minor prophets and why? I'm going to say Amos. I agree. I agree. It was my— That's my gut reaction. Mm. Son of a shepherd. Mm -hmm. I feel like Amos just has always clicked with me. He's convicted me. I read Amos and feel like, oh man, Amos is challenging me. He's calling me out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, yeah, I've always found Amos to be somebody that I responded to.
2: Mm. That's good. JT, you're in on Amos too?
1: I think so. Yeah.
2: Mm. I mean, I'd probably say Nehemiah just because I've spent the most time there, but that might be a cheater answer.
0: We'll let you have it.
2: Um, yeah. And cause it's, it's cause it's about leadership. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, everybody look forward to Jin's uh, forthcoming mm-hmm. book on leadership, loving mm-hmm. to lead 35 mm-hmm. lessons from mm-hmm. Nehemiah. Um,
2: Tearing out a dude's beard as a leadership yeah. strategy. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, Betsy asks, how do we pray? Uh, she asking JT, how do we pray
1: Trinitarianly? Oh man, I love this question. I, I this is probably the main question that comes out of the lecture that we do on Trinitarianism in the Institute, because people want to get real practical. And I mm-hmm. think that the Trinity is meant to be real practical. And so if, if I was simplifying it, I think we could even see a pattern here in Jesus's instruction to his disciples on prayer is that we pray to the father. So you might start a prayer by saying, our father who art in heaven, somebody taught us to do that. And then you would direct that prayer through the Son by praying in the name of Jesus. Like the reason that we have access to God, the author of Hebrews tells us is because of Christ's sacrificial and work of atonement for us on the cross. We have access to, to God through the Son, The veil has been torn. And we also have access to Christ because he has filled us with the Holy Spirit. So we're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit that our prayers are heard because we're full of the Holy Spirit. Even when we don't have words to say, the Bible tells us, the Spirit makes groans on our behalf. So to Mm -hmm. to simplify it real clearly, I would say this, pray to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. So you might say, God, my Father, so thankful, for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who's given me access to you and given me righteousness and peace and sanctification and justification. And I'm grateful for you, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and indwell me and give me the fruits of Christ in my life. So primarily we pray to the father, through the son, by the spirit. I would say non-normatively, we also pray to each person, but whenever we do that, we want to thank them for their specific work. We don't want to say things like, father, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins (laughs) Because the Father doesn't die on the cross for our sins. We thank the Father for sending the Son. We thank the Son for his active and passive obedience. We thank the Holy Spirit for his ongoing and dwelling presence and filling with us.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's good. Gracie, does kenosis deny the deity of Christ? Uh, Just for the audience, you might be like, well, what's kenosis? Well, there is a view uh, uh, referred to as kenosis or kenotic views on Christ. Usually it's anchored in Philippians 2, uh, talking about, humbling himself and being poured out. Uh, Emptying himself is sometimes the word that's used here, Philippians 2. Let me find it.
2: And it's Uh, spelled K-E-N-O-S-I-S, right?
0: Got it. Yep. Coming from the word uh, from Philippians 2, 7, him, Christ, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This idea of emptying out, kenosis. And does it deny the deity of Christ? I think it presents serious complications for the deity of Christ. I would say that Kenotic views on who Christ is are, I would, I would struggle with those personally. I, I don't want to say, there. I know there are Kenotic theologians who are like, no, it doesn't deny the deity of Christ. Here's what I would say. This means emptying himself, but it doesn't mean that he surrendered himself of his divinity, nor did he surrender himself of his divine attributes. It means that he surrendered the glories of heaven for life on earth but he did not surrender any aspect of who he is he is fully god fully man and i am hesitant to affirm any view kenotic or not that's going to call into question the full deity of christ and i think many of the articulations that i've read of kenosis implicitly or explicitly do that jt
1: Totally agree. Wholeheartedly. And and again, it's important for us to say that, of course, there is a kenosis that happens. That's the Greek term that Paul uses. But what Kyle just highlighted for us is important, is it is not that he's emptying himself of his divinity, if that's what he is saying, and if that's what someone confesses, that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy. He is fully God, fully man, light from light, true God from true God in all things that he does.
0: Yeah. Uh, kirsten asked i just finished teaching my first semester of in-person bible classes using your joshua study and it went so well thank you kirsten i worked really hard on oh Years <laughs> <laughs> i went in mm-hmm. went into that um i want to develop my own curriculum for our study to use where should i start so she's saying i taught it mm-hmm. in person I had to summarize the question. She had a lot of positive things to Mm -hmm. say about your curriculum Mm -hmm. and your teaching. Way to go, girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she's saying here, I taught your study in person uh, using your curriculum. I want to start developing my own curriculum for our use of church. Mm -hmm. Where do I start? What's your advice?
2: Yeah, my advice would be take your time on committing to that because the absolute hardest thing I do is write curriculum. And I didn't for many years. And I think it's important for people to... um, to understand like how it's part of the teaching prep you know so um so in in the one sense you get that time back on the back end when you stand up to teach as long as you're teaching to the curriculum you write but um learning how to write questions that work takes a lot of time and the best lab for learning whether the questions that you're writing are working is a living room setting. It's to be able to sit there and talk through the questions together and you start to hear whether your question did what you wanted it to or not. You know, like if you've ever asked a question and it kind of derails and goes all over the place, then you know, oh shoot, that question didn't do what I wanted to. And so, um, there are two good ways to learn how to write good questions. One is to read good questions that other people have written, uh, and 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 sort of pay attention to why there are better questions than others. And and then the second way is to sit with your own questions that you've written in a small setting and and hear how they're generating answers that are either what you wanted them to get to or not. But it is a long process. I would say that I still don't feel like I am always writing good questions. I'm writing better questions than I was 10 years ago. So enter into it with um, soberness, understanding it takes a great deal of time and that um, you might be better served to spend the first four or five years using other people's curriculum and adapting it um, versus jumping in to write your own, um, which I know, I know how hard it is to find good curriculum that you feel like is doing what you want it to. But that was ultimately what drove me to write my own stuff, was a very clear idea of what I did and didn't like about how other people were asking questions. That's good.
0: Yolisa or Yolisa. Yolissa? Uh, She asks, Romans 7, 4 says we have died to the law in Christ Jesus, but in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So if we are in Christ, it means that we have died to the law, but also we have fulfilled the law in Christ. How can both be true at the same time? Did we die to the law or did we fulfill the law in Christ?
1: I've got an idea, but I, I know Jen's thought about this a lot more than I have. not even written on a little bit. So Jen, tell me if you think I'm right. Uh, in Romans seven four, we died to the law, but immediately afterwards, I believe it's in verse eight, he says, uh, uh, "But but you know, but is the law sinful? Is it bad? Mm-hmm. By no means." And so Paul is not in any way he he's he is not an antinomian in in that term means he's not anti law. Mm-hmm. He's very pro law but he's pro for what the law was intended to do. Mm-hmm. And Paul knows that the law cannot save mm-hmm. uh, because we are sinners. And so what the, what the law does for us, if you're using some of Calvin's language around uses of the law, or even Paul's language in, in Romans 7, is it, is it actually provokes sin, it reveals sin, it condemns sin. And so what we want it to do in our own lives is to act as a spiritual MRI or mirror that demonstrates we are separated from God. It, it shows us our need for, for grace and mercy. John Wesley says, overwhelm with law, rescue him with grace. And I think that's what what Jesus is saying in, in Matthew is, I didn't come to abolish this thing. I came to fulfill it. And by that, it means that I will be the one who perfectly obeys it so that at the cross, you can die to it and I can give my active obedience to To you through an imputation of righteousness and justification, and now a new nature, a new motivation, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which will help you become doers of the law, not because you're trying to fulfill it to be saved, but you're a doer of the law because you've been saved through Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's great. And I I mean, the way the terms that I keep pulling people back to are um, positional, our positional relationship to the law versus our practical relationship to the law positionally in Christ, we have died to the law. The law cannot pass judgment upon us anymore. And the law is fulfilled perfectly in Christ and his perfect obedience is applied to our account. So positionally, we are positionally holy before the Lord. Um, But then if you go to practically, what is our relationship to the law? Every call to obey in the New Testament is a call to the law. Uh, it's saying to the believer, uh, because you are positionally holy, now you will be practically holy because you will want to be, not because you are compelled to be to earn favor, but because you already have it. JT and I are enjoying watching Kyle be muted right now, asking us the next question with a big smile on his face. I just wish you guys could have seen it because it was super great. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe
2: after we have another two-year pandemic, we'll all learn how to use the mute. Yeah, use this, right? And um, I include myself fan, in that. Who among us?
0: <laughs> fantastic! Um, wow, that was so basic. Um, Paula says, "I reckon after all these tough questions, you and your family need a holiday to New Zealand." What say you three?
2: Amen. Absolutely, Absolutely. Paula. Let it be until you know. said.
0: Yeah, Paula. We'll just uh, you just send us your address. Uh, we'll we'll crash at your place uh and uh yeah we would love to come out to new zealand and uh i've always wanted to to do the lord of the rings trail in oh new zealand oh my
2: gosh you know what would be great is if you could mention tolkien or lewis a little more often in these podcasts that's
0: why i that, that's why i put this one as the last question because i was like
1: have we told the story of kyle and the lord of the rings in the first we you
0: definitely have We <laughs> okay. have definitely
1: told this story. i just just want to make sure just if, if in yeah. case somebody forgot just just log that one again
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, I am a fan, and, you know, it's okay to be a fan. And you guys are an incredible audience. You ask phenomenal questions. Thank you. We love your questions. We love that you want to ask them. And guess what? Between now and next season, go be a theologian. Mm-hmm. Study. Read. Reflect on Romans. Converse with your friends, your community group, your small group. Start a podcast. If you haven't li- – Start up, start a podcast if you'd like. Um, uh, yeah, just like honestly, I just want to. I want. I want you to hear me say this. You can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do this. This is just three people who started eating lunch together at a Chick Fil A because mm-hmm. they were working together, and then had these conversations, and then were like, you know what? Let's just do this and record it, and 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 just have fun with it. And we did it. And it's been so incredible. We've learned so much from one another. And you can do this too. You can be a theologian. You can study. You can be a Bible study student. Go do it. I believe in you. We believe in you. We Mm -hmm. believe in you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so honestly, we're just so glad that you listened to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next season, you know. I introduced it last se- uh, last episode and then I cut it off with a tease, but next season we will be doing the doctrine of God. Yes. That is season 9. Doctrine of God is what we'll be doing and I am very excited about that. It's going to be a ton of fun um and uh there's so many great topics. Yep. Attributes of God, communicable and incommunicable, Trinity, trinitarian theology. Oh, man, it's going to be fantastic stuff. And we're going to have some great guests on, I'm sure of it, because there's so many people that will be really great on this topic. Uh, So we're excited. So we're going to be prepping this summer. You can pray for us as we think about the doctrine of God for the fall. This is our 150th episode of Knowing Faith. If I do quick math, and I assume every episode of Knowing Faith, or average, was 30 minutes, then we have done 75 hours (laughs) Of talking on knowing faith in hundred and fifty episodes. Uh and uh, you know, let's do seventy five. So more, roughly you know, hundred and
1: fifty or two hundred hours of doing this before <laughs> yes. and after an actual episode. <laughs> yep. yep. Hey, do you guys think we'll get to a thousand?
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Ooh. 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 <laughs> Just think about it.
2: No, I'll be dead if for we'll, sure.
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Yeah, yeah. No, but your hologram will still be here, That's right? Right. Because you're doing that whole like digital <laughs> mind thing. Yeah where you upload your consciousness. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, uh, you know, I don't know that we'll make it to a thousand, but we're going to keep on going. We got at least one more season. (laughs) I'm pretty
2: sure our listeners won't either way. So it's cool. no doubt. No (laughs) doubt. They're going to be like, I've heard these (laughs) stories. They're talking about Chick-fil-A sauce again. Yeah. Yep, here we go. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: listen, guys, you are an incredible audience. If you're looking for us, you can find us on Knowing Faith, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Next season, we're doing Doctrine of God. Check out our sister show, the Family Discipleship Mm -hmm. Podcast. They're doing incredible work over there. Uh, and listen, if you want more behind the scenes stuff in between seasons, we do some special release episodes that are for our Patreon crowd. You can go over to patreon.com slash You can find some stuff that will tide you over to next season. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.